When I was a kid, I used to read a lot of science magazines. 3 to 1 Contact, Pop Psy, Popular Mechanics, and I liked them because I loved to look at the inventions. I genuinely wanted to know what the future would look like, and sometimes the ideas were funny. Like one scientist decided peanut butter and jelly sandwiches were too hard to make, so he invented individual jelly slices that you could lay onto the bread instead of spreading it. Kind of like craft singles, and I have yet to see those in the real world. Some of the inventions were ingenious, like what if you could take your sunscreen in a pill instead of having to deal with applying it? And sometimes, well, there were things I still think about, like the idea of vertical farms. What if you could grow entire farms inside skyscrapers and rotate the crops to face the sun? And what if these skyscraper farms were in cities so you could reduce the distance to get all this fresh food to people? It's kind of incredible, right? In some ways, vertical farms are like robot butlers and jetpacks. These things science magazines and the Jetsons told us about inventions that feel like they should be just around the corner to solve all our problems. But what if we don't have time to wait? According to the USDA, about 23.5 million people live in food deserts today. Those are areas where it's difficult or impossible to access affordable, healthy food options. And it's no surprise that nearly half of these food deserts are in low-income areas as well. Areas where grocery stores don't think they can make a profit. So people are forced to make do with what's available. They eat fast food or junk food because that's what's near, which leads to all sorts of health complications. It's a cycle and it is depressing, but there are things we can do right now. It turns out growing your own food is one of the most promising solutions. We don't often think of gardening as a path to self-reliance, but growing, whether that's part of a community garden or even in your own backyard, allows people to eat healthier, disrupt a broken system, and meet their own food demands. And along the way, it should make for happier and healthier communities too. Hey there, I'm Mangesh Hatigler, co-host of Part-Time Genius, one of the co-founders of Mental Floss, and this is Humans Growing Stuff, a collaboration from iHeartRadio and your friends at miracle Grow. My goal is to make this the most human show about plants you'll ever listen to. And along the way, we'll share sweet, inspiring stories, tips and tricks to nurture your plant addiction, and just enough science to make you sound like an expert. In today's episode, we're going to explore the issues surrounding food deserts and the bootstrapped community builders and leaders who are working on growing solutions to eliminate food insecurity. Chapter 6. Can Growing Food Grow Freedom? The truth is, food deserts aren't a new phenomenon. Years ago, I was driving into Wilmington, Delaware to pick up a friend from the train station. I actually went to elementary school in Wilmington. My school bus used to take me along the same route, but before I picked up my friend, I needed to run into a grocery store, so I stopped by this familiar chain. But what I saw inside was dismal. I remember being struck by how sad the offerings were. The shelves were barely stocked, the produce was meager and old, and for me, 
the experience was jarring. This felt like the flimsiest excuse for a grocery store, and there really weren't other options around. Of course, this isn't a problem that's unique to Wilmington. All over the country, you can find areas that are flush with grocery stores. They have aisles upon aisles of fresh produce, and then on the other side of town, you can pass through neighborhoods with a single poorly stocked store. Or sometimes areas where they're just dollar stores or corner stores as replacements. So I've been wondering what's being done to change or combat this issue. Kamal Bell is on the front lines of fighting food deserts. He's a teacher and the founder of Sankofa Farms in North Carolina, just outside of Durham. The farm is focused on serving those in the Durham and Orange County urban areas that are effectively food deserts. Each week, Kamal and his team deliver dehydrated chips, farm-fresh eggs, and honey, all made from the bounty of his farm and his beehive. Additionally, Kamal has made it his personal mission to teach students in these areas STEM and agriculture to set them up for success and a nutrient-rich future where they can grow their food, not only for themselves, but for their communities. I called up Kamal to hear more about his journey with Sankofa and how he's seen the change in the communities he serves especially when they have access to healthy foods. Hey, Kamal. Hey, how you doing? Doing well. First things first, I want to hear how you got into farming. All right, so I was on track to be a, a veterinarian, and I was sitting in class one day, and this dawned on me. It was like, what are you going to do with this that really serves people and that serves you? And me and my wife, we were finding out we were having our first son. So I was thinking about what could we do to always support him, like no matter what happened, whether we were unemployed, whether we employed, if something goes wrong and how can we always make sure this young man is taken care of and farming dawned on me. And also at this time I was working on my master's, I was studying these things called food deserts. And I'm thinking about what's the common thread that connects everything and farming was that thing. And what sort of gave you the confidence that you could grow stuff and, and be a farmer? That's a great question. Like, I, that's a great question. Not, not, not a lot of people ask me that. So the, what, gave, what drives me to do that is, one, I feel like I'm really helping my community. I, I'm curious. Sankofa actually has a few meanings, right? Uh-huh. Can, can, can you talk about the alternate meanings of it? Yeah, so Sankofa also means to go back and get it. So it comes out of the Akan language in West Africa and it's, it's symbolic or represented by a mythical bird. And as it's moving forward, its head is turned backward. If we want to fix problems in today's time, we have to look back in our ancestry, in our history, to be able to attack these issues. I love that. Sankofa came up when I learned about these food deserts. And I was just like, how can we get people food? If we're trying to get people food, of course, we need more people to produce food. Um, there's also an allocation issue that goes into um, the whole the making of the food desert. But for me, like what I felt like I can really impact was the growing of the food. At first, I started out selling dehydrated chips. I have a commercial dehydrator like 50 feet away from me in my garage that we used to use. And the whole idea behind that was to get people who are living in food deserts and affected by food insecurity a healthier food. So we should dehydrate apples, pineapples, kale, mangoes, cinnamon apples, bananas. We used to make all these products and get them to people who are affected um, or food insecure areas. And for me, East Greensboro is a food desert through and through. But in West Greensboro, you had a more affluent side of town 
and you have like this overabundance of healthy food. Like you have food stops everywhere, mm-hmm. but we were able to streamline the leverage that we had created with the dehydrated chips. And then that led us into uh, getting the farm. I, I know you spend a lot of time delivering food to, to various communities and groups. Can, can you talk a little bit about the diversity of groups that you're uh, passing food along to? So there's an organization called Root Causes that works with farmer food. It's a food distribution. Uh, it's a co-op in Durham. And they get food to people who have been recommended by the doctor. And I like the food to be really fresh. So like I'll go the extra mile to make sure it's like far fresh. It's not, has, it hasn't been sitting for a couple hours. I'll go... Wake up at around 5.30, get there around 6.30 tomorrow morning. So drive to the farm, harvest food, have that dropped off by 9.30, and then they distribute it in their bags. Like It's part of a larger system. They send uh, bags of healthy produce to people. It's just been really cool to work with organizations that can do the handle distribution aspect. it's It's just really cool. It's just really cool. There's a teaching component. The story involves you being at a public school in Durham, right? Yes. I actually drew up this idea of the farm and took it to the principal because I was teaching agriculture at the school and the students would gravitate toward the work and they will also change their behavior. So I saw that introducing them to agriculture gave them a foundation outside of the classroom. And that's, I think that's what we want education to do. Like it just can't be useful in the school. Mm. So I literally took them out to the farm and two of the students, one of them, his birthday is actually today. His name is Kamani. Oh, nice. Uh, happy birthday, Kamani. He'll be listening to this at some point. Him and another student, Cameron, whose birthday was last week, they actually have stayed with the program from its inception all the way until now. So it's been really cool to see their growth and see their knowledge base grow and then see them be able to say, hey, y'all, I am in this food insecure area, but I'm in this place where I have access to fresh fruit because I know how to do it and how to grow it and I can take it home with me. I'm curious, just as we get into food deserts, how would you define a food desert? That's a great question. Um, because terminology can be used against people to confuse them, I just define it as a place where you don't have access to healthy food. So it, it gets tricky because the USA has definition and then people say they're not food deserts, it's like a food apartheid. I hear all that, but I'm like, look, the reality is people want to eat healthy and don't have access to it or in economics goes into it because you look at cars. Like some people might not have cars to, to drive to the store. Then you look at how the city is drawn out, like city planning goes into it. Um, through these communities, I'm like, dang, I'm tired of seeing corner stores everywhere. You see corner stores on your left, on your right. You don't even have to go in. All this unhealthy food. When you start seeing family dollars in communities, that's a pretty good identifier that it's a food desert. Mm-hmm. It's just any place that I go in and I know that people... You can like literally see a food just by the, how you see the people in the area um, in an urban setting. Now, in a rural setting, you're even further from a uh, grocery store because our farmers in a rural area. You, you would think since there's farms around, they're getting healthy food. But a lot of the farms aren't producing that quality of food. So we're really talking about like a really a really large issue that affects people that affects a lot of people. What do you think the solutions are going to be? I think. It's a multi-tier plan. I think we have to look at food distribution. We definitely have to look at agricultural education and really getting kids in. Because if once these students get in permanent situations, like they can turn their backyards into a, into a garden. Everybody has to pitch in. So I think we have to look at distribution. We have to look at getting the younger generation into agriculture. And then overall awareness. I think a lot of people aren't aware that 
they're living in a food insecure area. And once you become aware, we can start troubleshooting and working with structures in our communities that are trying to fix the issue. But even if you can't get to some of these large organic like groceries and stuff, there it's expensive, right? It is. There's a real value to being able to grow your own. It, it is. And then the economic piece where like people, if if not saying it's a one, it's like a, a remedy for everybody. But there are people who want to do better in their communities. And agriculture can be that tool, that resource. Because I, like one thing that's like that you hear a lot is that the communities don't have resources. There are resources in these areas. Just change your perspective on where you are and you can begin to reimagine how you can change that area. You're a resource in your community and look at this land that's there. Look at the way the houses are situated. So there are people who I think would really, if they had access to the resource, would really change. And I see that especially with the bees. People like love bees. My wife just got certified two weeks ago. Like, <laughs> I, I'm certified. Four the students are certified beekeepers. I never knew I was going to be a beekeeper. You would have asked me three years ago. I well, four years ago, I'd have been like, I'm scared of bees. But just getting people access to resources and opportunities, and we'll see a shift in a lot of things. I mean, my my favorite thing on your, I was looking at the store on your website and you, you know, you've got some lettuce and t-shirts and stuff. And then it's like, Lisa Beehive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's a program that's going to really be, really take off because right with like this whole movement start with us seeing the police brutality with George Floyd, when that wave hit, there was a lot of attention that went to black farmers and, and black people in agricultural spaces. And we got like this wave of followers out of nowhere. And somebody hit me up on Twitter the other day. They were like, can I lease a beehive? And I'm like, where do you live? He was like, California. And I was like, well, you can lease it at Sankofa and we'll send you the honey from your hive. And he was like, oh, I can't wait till next spring. But I think we're going to see a, um, a really big jump in that program next year. Because right now we're at 40 beehives. So... We're going to have a lot. I've never seen that before. I, I loved it so much just looking at that. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, you know, you know, but one of the things you were hitting on with social issues and, and uh, when you're not dependent on others for food and you're not feeling that insecurity, then you have space to concentrate and change other things in your life, you know? And, and, and I was curious if you're thinking about that as well. Yeah. If I think about like how much time that we spend going to a grocery store and Society is already fast paced. Whether we want to be like honest, we're doing all these things at some level to eat. Everybody wants to eat. But if we can just start going into this for ourselves, we would have more control over every of other aspects of our life, especially our health. We got to talk about the correlation between healthy eating and your health. Those things go hand in hand. And I don't even think it's society, I think it's a basic human necessity, like us being able to grow food for ourselves. I think we can really impact and create a lot of change. I know you spend a lot of time delivering food to, to various communities and groups. Have you seen the the impact on the people themselves, the people who are receiving the food? I haven't, and that's primarily because we're dropping it off. And I probably haven't because I'm, I haven't like consciously thought of it. Yeah, I feel like it would make me cry if somebody was just like, yeah, that kill was just so good and my daughter's liked it or my son. I think I'll probably like tear up. Yeah, of course. I don't want to ever feel like the job is done. I don't want to settle. So yeah. this morning, in my mind, I'm like, oh, I didn't do enough. Like, I'm that type of person. So I want to do more. That's really cool. Kamal Bell, thank you so much for hanging out with us and, and sharing your story. No problem. Thank you for interviewing me. This has been real cool. 
Humans Growing Stuff. We'll be right back after a short break. I've been thinking a lot about what Kamal said, about how the resources are there to grow our own food and become independent of the food distribution system. It made me think of the Bronx Green Up, the community gardens here in New York where sometimes people grow so much food, they end up sharing it with their friends or, in one man's case, even mailing the harvest to his relatives in Puerto Rico. And I thought about Shelley from the Highland Community Gardens too, where the organization takes saplings and plants them in neighbors' backyards so families can cultivate their own veggies. It's a service they offer to combat food deserts. But Gary Oppenheimer, the founder of AmpleHarvest.org, has figured out another way to help. What if there was a better way to share all the extra food we end up growing? What if we could take all the extra produce that's farmed and connect American gardeners to the local food pantries in need? It's an incredible idea, and I want to hear more. So we gave him a call. Hey, Gary, how's it going? I am well, Mangesh. How are you? Doing super well, and it's really nice to be chatting. So I want to hear all about how you started AmpleHarvest.org and, and to get your backstory a little bit. Um, went to college, studied psychology, and decided when I was done with school that I should never be a psychologist, which my wife fully agrees with. <laughs> and fast forward to 1998, we buy a house in northern New Jersey and a large piece of property. And I decided that I have all this land, I should know how to garden. So I became a master gardener. I was successfully as it turns out, like millions of other gardeners, growing more food than I could use or preserve or share with friends. I started looking around to see where I could donate, and I found a battered woman's shelter in my town, and I took the food there. The woman who accepted the food, she said, thank you, now we can have fresh food. And that was a weird thing I remember walking away hearing. Around the same time, I was asked to take over the management of my town's community garden, and I did. At the end of the prior growing season, when I first met with the people in the garden, one of the people said to me that she was deeply concerned because the, uh, at the end of the growing season, there was a lot of food being left over in the garden. People were bored, overwhelmed, went on vacation. She said, I don't want to see that food go to waste. And I said, well, if we're going to have an ample harvest, the least we could do is get it to hungry people. Now, I had never said the phrase ample harvest in my life. I'd never, those two words had never come together. They loved that idea. We set about setting up a program in this community garden to do that very thing. And in the process, I discovered that when I went onto Google, Google said the nearest food program to me was in Morristown, New Jersey, 25 miles away, which I knew was wrong. And it suddenly dawned on me that the food problem we were experiencing wasn't about the food. It was about information. I had been misinformed, as we all have been, that you weren't allowed to donate food to a food pantry. You all heard the mantra that food drives of jars, cans, boxes, but no fresh food. We were told you can't do that. Mm -hmm. What I realized, this was fundamentally a problem of misinformation and missing information. The misinformation, you're not allowed to donate the food. The missing information was to where to donate it and the optimum day of the week and time at which to do it. Because if you timed it just right, the food pantry did not need to refrigerate your food because the food could be donated just before the hungry families take it home. 
I then got two volunteers to help me. And over the next nine weeks, we built what is today ampleharvest.org. The idea was to create a massive public awareness campaign helping millions and millions of gardeners learn that they can donate food and to build an optimized search engine of America's food pantries and for the pantry to guide the gardener to the day of the week and time of day that's best for donation. That was launched in May of 2009. Here we are now in October of 2020 and nearly 9,000 food pantries, about a quarter of all the food pantries in America in 4,200 communities in all 50 states are now a part of ampleharvest.org. And I should tell you one big important number. Pre-COVID, the National Gardening Association said that America had 42 million gardeners, 35% of all households. Now in these COVID years, it's skyrocketed to 62 million gardeners. 62 million people in this country grow food, not like a farmer to make money, but for their own pleasure and enjoyment. And that's our target uh, population. And that's just since COVID. The, well, the, the, from the jump of 42 to 62 million is just since COVID, correct? Wow. And part of that, when you think about it, is if you're no longer commuting to work, if you're working from home, for example, you have time to garden. And most people, once they start, really enjoy it and don't stop. You know, you were telling me before before the show that that you had actually um, donated an, a vast amount of food from your own garden. H- how much did you donate again? Uh, about 252 pounds, give or take. <laughs> which is amazing. That's like five times the size of my seven-year-old, which, which is <laughs> impressive. <laughs> let, let me tell you something. Um, Pre-COVID, our data showed that America's gardeners grew 11 plus billion pounds more food than they could use or preserve or share with friends. Wow. If all that food, if all of that food were donated that would feed 28 million people a year. And so how many how many people estimated do you do you think uh ampleharvest.org is is feeding or helping to feed right now? We're not really feeding people, I'd rather say we're nourishing people. Hmm. Because food pantries do their best to feed people, but they're getting whether it's food donated or it is food that they acquire, but it's all processed food. Sure. It certainly feeds you, but it's not fresh food. Right now, what this country needs more than anything else is nourishing, healthy, fresh food. With ampleharvest.org, we don't touch the food. We are enabling the gardeners across America to learn that they can donate food and then to donate the food. We are orchestrating a wholesale change. Mm -hmm. We also know that two-thirds of gardeners, once they know they can donate, will actually expand the size of their garden if they have the space to actually donate more food. Do you think that when people show up to these food pantries and are receiving fresh foods that down the line, they start thinking about growing them themselves? I don't know. I hope they do. What I do know is that when food, fresh food is donated to a food pantry, when a hungry family comes in and I've been, I've been in food pantries many times across the country and I try to be a fly in the wall in the corner, just watching what's going on. When there's fresh food there, that's the first table that the people go to because when they see the tomatoes, the zucchini, the, the squash, what have you, 
they know what really value that brings to the nutrition of the family and they get that food. You know, what? one of the things I'd been curious too is like as you stand from a distance as this conductor of this incredible service and organization, how much do you get to be a fly in the wall? What sort of experiences have you seen uh, and witnessed from when you go into these places? Routinely, we get phone calls and we get emails from people struggling to put food on the table. And we do our best up. We, 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 we direct them to United Way. We direct them to whyhunger.org where they can get help. But I get to hear firsthand the difficulty that people have. Back in 2012 or 13, I get an email from a woman who says, I'm having a great deal of difficulty putting uh, food on the table. I work. My husband's not able to work. My kids are hungry. Can you help us? That's one of many types of letters and stuff that come in like that. But this woman was active duty U.S. Navy. Wow. We had a member of the military struggling to put food on the table. I have a hard time talking about it even today. I also, on the other side, routinely get emails from people about, I'm so glad I found you. I'm so glad I heard about you. I, I got an email from a guy in the Southwest who said he was so grateful to hear about ampleharvest.org. The prior year, he had thrown away eight 55-gallon drum of grapefruit from trees on his property. Wow. The opportunity is staggering. And it doesn't have to be a gardener who has a truckload of food. You can walk in with a, you know, a handful of carrots, a handful of parsley, or boxes and cartons, whatever it is. It's not important how much the gardener is donating. It's that the food doesn't go to waste. And by the way, I should point out that since food waste is a critical contributor to climate change, the environmental and climate change benefits of this program are huge. Not only is climate change reduced, but so is the waste stream. So the environment is better, climate change is reduced, the community and the country are healthier. This is a win-win-win all the way around. And by the way, the gardeners can get a tax deduction for the donation of the food, but we know from our studies the majority don't care. They just want to be doing the right thing. So, Gary, what kind of work are you doing with community gardens specifically? We have a program, if you go to ampleharvest.org slash community garden, that we've had a program to help community gardens learn um, about donating. My belief has always been that community gardens are important because there's a good amount of food there. But the real pressing need for us is the individual gardener, the uh, person who's working in their own backyard. They don't subscribe to, to um, gardening magazines. They're not on gardening websites. They just, they've always known how to grow food. They learned it from their parents or whatever, but nobody's ever gotten to them and said, by the way, you can donate that surplus food. Gary, thank you so much. It's, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Sankofa and ampleharvest.org aren't the only organizations of their kind working so hard to supply pantries and people in need. But what about self-reliance and this idea of growing your own? One of the things we've heard over and over on this program is that it doesn't take that much room to grow what you need, especially if you're creative. The phenomena is called microgardening, and it's exactly what it sounds like. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization describes microgrowing as the intensive cultivation of a wide range of vegetables, roots, tubers, and herbs, all in small spaces. So think about like balconies, patios, rooftops, and the UN is huge fans of this. In fact, the FAO thinks it could be the best answer to providing food and nutrition security 
to low-income households because it doesn't require a backyard. Most micro-growing happens in small wooden boxes or stacked garden boxes. You can do it all in an area of about 10 square feet. Of course, when you're micro-gardening, you've got to think about how to use the space efficiently, and there are lots of options. If you listen to our first episode, where we talked to Mr. Plant Geek, Michael Perry, he talked about these amazing plants that actually grow vegetables on top of one another. Well, egg and chips plant is basically all one plant, which is grafted in the middle, so it grows as one, and it's an eggplant, aka aubergine, on the top and a potato on the bottom, so hence the egg and chips. There's also another plant in that series, which is the tomato, and that is tomatoes on the top and potatoes on the bottom, and that was actually marketed as ketchup and fries plant in the U.S., This is something that used to be done during the war in order to make the use of space in limited space in gardens and on allotments. Plants like these are great space savers and help your garden grow more efficiently. With solutions like microgardening your own food, suddenly people have some agency. And when you're not hungry, it's so much easier to fight for the things you need. It's not something I thought about, but Naima Pennyman from Soulfire Farms She put it beautifully. Just what's possible when you have food at your fingertips? I'm curious, you know, you use the phrase food apartheid. I'm wondering if you could sort of define that for our audience. Yeah, the government designates food desert areas. We prefer using the term food apartheid because a desert is a natural phenomenon. And we believe the system that has created food opulence for some and extreme food scarcity for others is there's nothing natural about that. That's a man-made condition that we have a responsibility to, to shift. One of the lines that you said that really struck me was to free ourselves, we must feed ourselves. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So to free ourselves, we must feed ourselves is having determination over something as basic as the means of our survival through the food we consume every day is a really critical part of our liberation as peoples. And Fannie Lou Hamer, who started Freedom Farms in Sunflower County, Mississippi, said, if you have 500 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned for the winter, no one can push you around or tell you what to do. She recognized that who controls the food controls the people. And that as civil rights organizers organizing in the South at that time, if you did not control the means of your survival, you would come groveling, putting down your voting ballot, you know, putting down your protest signs and come begging for food because that is something we all fundamentally need for ourselves and our family. So there's this connection that is so relevant today too. And I feel especially in the midst of this pandemic we find ourselves in where the cracks in the food system are laid bare and the food insecurity that already existed is heightened and made even more extreme. I feel that also in this pandemic moment is kind of a wake-up call, a reckoning of the importance of reclaiming that um, for ourselves, building more community self-determination and food sovereignty. So how do we combat this notion of food apartheid and give people their agency back? It's like Naima said, we teach them to grow. 
By empowering people to start their own gardens, it gives them the tools to fight against hunger and malnourishment because self-preservation begins with self-reliance. The truth is, I don't think about food security that much. We give money to food banks, my wife cooks meals and drops them off to a center close by. It's a small part of our lives, but not one that occupies much space in our brains. But this year, a few things came into focus. During the start of the pandemic, when grocery stores were overwhelmed and food delivery services were taking a few weeks to deliver food, we started meal planning and rationing in a way that we never had before. We started thinking about food as a scarcity, something we've been lucky enough never to do before. And it made us genuinely worry for others. I worked on this show earlier this year where we reported on the Minnesota experiment, which was new to me. It's this experiment that was conducted during the tail end of World War II. And it was one of the first studies on what famine and hunger can do to bodies, something that hadn't been investigated before. The study focused on men in their 20s, people who were hale and hearty and had sweet temperaments. But once scientists started restricting the food, the subject's behavior changed drastically. Suddenly they became irritated and impatient when service was slow. They were possessive over their food, they hunched over their trays and used their arms to box others out and protect their meals. They started using a lot more salt. And fairly soon, the food insecurity made them paranoid and aggressive, and their bodies began to ache. Their knees and feet swelled, they didn't have the energy or motivation to do little things like make their beds or take showers or go to classes. It's incredible to see what happens to a population when you take away the consistent access to meals. How so much of what drives you and feels like a hallmark of your personality evaporates when there's no food on the table. I'm not saying this is one-to-one, but if I can get hangry when I skip a meal, what's it mean for the kids who have to wait an entire weekend to get access to a school breakfast or lunch? Or when the only things they can put into their body is the fast food and food from a corner store that's available. I was reading this article in the Journal of Sustainable Development, and it points out in a recent study by the University of Minnesota, the highest levels of obesity, 32 to 40%, were observed in census tracts with no supermarkets, where the residents only had access to bodegas and convenience stores. These are areas where diabetes and cardiac problems end up most prolific. But look at what happens when you tackle the problems early. A 2008 article in Lancet showed that boys in impoverished areas who benefited from this randomized nutrition intervention, and this was in the first two years of their life, they earned wages as adults that were 50% higher than non-participants. How we eat from a young age actually changes our financial prospects in life. I don't like politics, but I do believe in humanity and science. So I'll leave you with one last study. It's an old one, but it's one I think about a lot. The marshmallow study. You've probably seen or heard about this one, but scientists take a kid and offer them this delicious marshmallow. They place it on a table and then tell the kid they can have the treat now where if they wait 10 minutes and resist the temptation, they'll get two marshmallows. Then they leave the room. And the results are pretty well known. 
the kids who wait all that time for the second marshmallow are better at self-control. And scientists have said that these kids have the grit to become more successful in life. And maybe that's true. But what happens if you live in a house where you don't know where your next meal is coming from? What if you're in a situation where you take the food in front of you because you can't trust that a second marshmallow actually is coming? What if you've been conditioned to grab what you can get to survive? But also, what if a little education and a little support can change that narrative? What if that same kid can come into the marshmallow experiment after eating a handful of cherry tomatoes? Or know that there's a fridge full of food waiting for him? Stuff he grew and canned or pickled, or even just food that's waiting for him to pluck off a little vine in his kitchen. Because having a full belly might not sound that important until you realize it is. And what if having a little garden that you own that you can harvest is actually key to your ability to change the world? That's it for today's episode. Don't forget, whether you're a beginner like me, a pro trying something new, or someone in between enjoying your backyard garden, there are incredible resources waiting for you on the miracle Grow website. Next time on our show, we'll focus on the stunning ecosystem hiding in your backyard and the magical relationships that help a garden to flourish. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Also, we want to hear from you. What are your inspiring plant stories, relatable struggles, or growing questions? Tag us in your post or tweet using the hashtag humansgrowingstuff. And don't be surprised if you hear your story featured on an upcoming episode. Humans Growing Stuff is a collaboration from iHeartRadio and your friends at Miracle Grow. Our show is written and produced by Molly Sosha and me, Mangesha Tegler, in partnership with Ryan Ovedia, Daniel Ainsworth, Haley Erickson, and Garrett Shannon of Banter. Till next time, thanks so much for listening.